This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. Joining me today, as always, is our pastor of spiritual formation and bunker captain, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. He's in the recording bunker today. It's exciting you're not in Scott's office. Yeah, I'm back to my, my normal place yes. with lights on, and it's actually cold in here, which is, which is a bonus, because last time it was not so cold. There you go. <laughs> well, well, it's, it, it's a temperate climate, and it's quiet with good internet, so today's show, folks, should be an auditory delight. That's, <clears throat> that's our hope here. So this is part two of our two-part series on the subject of reconciliation. If you missed the episode from last week... Uh, Sam was talking to us about the history of the Jewish people and the Samaritan people and the many striking parallels there are uh, between that racial tension and some of what we have going on right now in America. If you missed that, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, It's really not the focus today. Today, we're really going to be looking more at the individual uh, reconciliation between the Samaritan woman and her Lord, her Savior. But if you wanted to look at it at the societal level, I hopefully last week would be a thought-provoking episode to listen to and something that would be certainly worth your time. Um, But today, we're going to go back to that well in Samaria, where we left this woman last week, because we were talking sort of all around it, and uh, <laughs> Jesus had come to a well in Samaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, you know, if they want to hear the whole setup to the thing, they can listen to last week. But he encounters this woman at a well, and as you have pointed out, that was not random or by chance. Jesus went there to seek out this woman. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, this passage says that Jesus, you know, must go through Samaria. And the idea behind that is in his sovereignty, he knows there's this woman there. So what, what's going to take, which is kind of a cool thought, it's going to take him, you know, a couple of days of travel to get to the place where this well is. And so when he sets out, you know, he knows that he needs to meet her. He knows that he's going to be at this well at noon. And in his sovereignty, he's anticipated that he's moving to be exactly where he's going to find her, which is just kind of a fun thought for for me, knowing that the Lord is always moving. And even when I can't see him in front of me, you know, he's going to meet me where I need him. Mm. And and I love, you know, he comes to this town of Samaria called Sychar. And, and you know, now one of the things – What is that what, – what is Sychar? Is that – so yeah, one of the things that's interesting about this, you know, last week we, we talked about how Jesus reconciles groups. And mm-hmm. so pictured in the Samaritan woman is an entire, you know, racial identity of the Samaritans that was at war with the Jews. And even in the name of Sychar, you have um, – Something where it was a it was actually a derogatory term. This is this is not Sychar in the Old Testament. This was the city of Shechem, and Shechem had this you know kind of noble history. This is where Joseph's bones were buried when they were taken up out of Egypt during the Exodus, and they come and they bury them at Shechem. There's still a site there where they claim that Joseph's bones are buried. You can it's it's a hop, skip, and a jump away from this well. Actually, mm. um, this is where. 
Joshua, during the conquest of the promised land, gives that famous speech that some of us might know where he says, choose this day whom you will serve as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yep. Like, this is there. This is Shechem. It's got this great heritage. Joshua twenty four fifteen. I remember that verse well. There you go. It's, on, it's, on, it's in a lot of living rooms, you know. It is. And, and Sychar is the place, but they, the Jews had changed the name of Sychar to, from Shechem to Sychar. And that word literally means drunkard, and mm. some some scholars think it might come from the Hebrew word for liar. So it's a derogatory name, and they had changed it to be a derogatory name. Hmm. And so that idea of a drunkard and the conversation that's going to happen between Jesus and this woman at a well, is I don't think it's accidental. Um, because the, the connotations of a drunkard, well, what is that? It's somebody who's running to something else to try to escape reality. It's somebody who's running to a, to something else to try to get some satisfaction that leaves them empty again and again and again. And so with this derogatory name of somebody who's struggling intensely with an addiction that leaves them empty and destroys their life, Jesus is going to come and have this conversation with this woman about the way that she's living and the way that she just finds emptiness in life, and he's coming to satisfy her heart you know, with something better. An interesting thing about this encounter to me is that uh, Jesus arrives, and then the disciples go off to find some food for him, it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, So that Jesus is going to encounter this woman at the well alone, by himself. And I also believe that that's something that's done on purpose. I mean, obviously, pretty much everything Jesus did was done on purpose. I mean, he was, you know, Jesus was not a random person. He did things for reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I just feel like if the disciples were there with him, they would have been getting in the way of the Samaritan woman talking to him mm-hmm. uh, because they would have been appalled that he would want to speak to her. I mean, just that sort of the, all of that cultural thing. Jesus kind of shoved, shoved that aside by like, hey, guys, um, why don't you run down to, uh, to uh, Taco Bell and get me a burrito? I'm kind of hungry. Shwarma. Shwarma Bell. Shwarma That's over Bell. in there. <laughs> okay. So Shwarma Bell and get me whatever they sell there uh, so that he would encounter this woman um, by himself. And I thought, I've thought to myself, that's so, mm. such a wonderful thing that God wants to encounter you personally that he wants to encounter you apart from all of the cultural baggage and the things that would get in the way of you being able to come right to him. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus was right there for her personally. And then he spoke to her, which was, you know, you, I just, I kind of, I, in my mind, I imagined her kind of like almost dropping the water pot. <laughs> you know, what? You're yeah. talking to me? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, she, I mean, she calls him out. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Um, and, and man, this, this, like you said, Jesus wants to meet her alone. And that's really um, tender of her because she wanted to be alone. You know, mm. we're told in verse 6, we mentioned this last week, that she comes out to get water, to draw wet from the well at the sixth hour, which would be noon. And nobody went out to get their water at noon. It was the, you know, in Shechem, it's an arid climate. It's the hottest part of the day. There's no, you know, shade there. So she's, she's deliberately going at a time when she knows that no one else is going to be there. And the reason why she's out there is because she feels ashamed. She's, she's probably somebody, likely somebody who is rejected from her community. Um, the Samaritans weren't liked by the Jews 
but the Samaritans held, you know, many of the same legalistic notions. You know, they they had their own version of the Torah, but they very much looked down their noses at adulterous women. And so she had, you know, the red scarlet letter A on her chest. You know, she she was, you know, the the one that was dismissed and she feels ashamed and tries to avoid people and so Jesus meets her alone and there's a tenderness in that. You know, he he doesn't want her <laughs> to have the disciples who most certainly would have made her feel uncomfortable there. Mm. And and verse 7 when we're introduced to her, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And that is a tremendously important statement. We, t- we talked about this again last week, how so many of the Old Testament married couples that are really famous got their start at a well. Mm-hmm. And so I want to look at one of them, but like, you know, so Isaac and Rebecca, she was found at a well. Rachel was found at a well. Zipporah, Moses' wife, was found at a well. Ruth, by the way, when, when Boaz expressed an interest for her, invites her to come and drink from his well. And so, like, you know, you laugh. You, we said it's a firstcenturymatch.com. That's where everybody that, went to meet people. That's it. Yeah. And so it's where you meet your bride. And so we're we're not to lose that. But when Jesus says to her, give me a drink, this is – it should draw our attention immediately to a very famous story that's in the book of Genesis at the first time someone meets their wife at a well. So what happens is in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham knows that he's getting old. He knows that he's going to die, and his son is, is a, you know, creeping up in years, and he's not married yet. And so Abraham tells one of his servants, I want you to go back to my homeland, and I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac. And so the servant goes, and as he's going there, he kind of makes this deal with God. And this is toad, these two stories are totally talking to one another. But the servant says, Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And so then he says, okay, this is what I'm looking for, God. I put, you know, I want you to come through on this and show me who I'm supposed to pick for Isaac. He says, behold, I'm standing here by a spring of water, a well, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall respond, drink, and I will water your camels also. Let her be the one that you've appointed for your servant, Isaac. And so this is what we're, we're imagining, right? You have the servant who says, hey, the bride that I want for Isaac, right, I'm going to go and say, give me a drink. And if she responds and says, I'll not only give you a drink, but I'll water your camels too, that's the one who's going to be the bride. Mm-hmm. That's the sign. And so Rebecca is described as this beautiful woman. She's she's a virgin. She's pure. She comes, and you know what she does? She says, oh, here, I'll draw water for you. Please, have a drink. And by the way, I'll go ahead and water all of your camels that you've brought too. And that's the sign. This is the bride. And Isaac wins a prize. Rebecca's wonderful, like incredible. And Jesus comes to the well and gives this same statement, right, to the Samaritan woman. Give me a drink, Right. And so if we're if we're thinking back, you know, what what is she supposed to do? She's supposed to to give a drink, she's supposed to offer mm-hmm. and what we find in here is unlike Rebecca, who's beautiful, 
who is highly thought of, who's virginal, who's servant-hearted, who's, who's got all of these amazing things going for her. The Samaritan is ashamed. She's adulterous. She's got, you know, had five different husbands. And one of the things that I, lo- I love about this story is she, she never actually gives Jesus a drink. <laughs> and what Jesus is inviting us to see here is this is a picture of his bride. This, this is me. You know, we come to the table, you know, we're, we're not, you know, just Jewish or just Gentile, but he calls all races to himself, and that's found in this woman. She's, you know, half-breed, as they would have called them back then. She's got Jew in her. She's Gentile in her. She's, she's adulterous, right? She gives her heart to anything that might fill it for just a moment, and yet she never offers Jesus what he asked for and he gives her living water anyway, as we'll see here in a moment. And that's, that's a picture of us. And yet his kindness and his goodness is so abundant toward her. That's a real comfort for me. Because mm. um, we are not the Rebecca's. <laughs> you know, we are not this beautiful, pure, servant-hearted, amazing bride that Jesus wins for himself. We're this ashamed, enslaved, um, heartbroken, lonely woman who fails to serve him as we should, and yet he loves us with abundance anyway. And so I love this woman because in her I see myself. Um, And I think the church should see themselves in this woman. I think the exchange is interesting where Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Um, hmm. there's just the way that he says, if you would, if you knew the gift of God, I've often thought to my mind, at least when I look at that, I would say, well, Jesus is mm-hmm. the gift of God, That's you good. know? <laughs> yeah. So it's like basically saying to her that you really just don't have any idea who it is that you're talking to at this minute, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I think it's interesting because it says that what you need to do to get living water you don't need to prove yourself worthy of the living water. You don't need to, you know, complete some ritual to deserve the living water. You just need to ask the right person. Mm-hmm. We talked about before we turned the recorder on too, uh, this idea that of the, the, the living water that, the, that flows continually, that Jesus puts it here about saying that, that they would become a fountain of water that springs up to everlasting life. But just this idea that the water would keep flowing, that they would, they would continually be satisfied by it, that they would never be thirsty again. And, hmm. you know, before we got started with the recording, I was saying that, that I feel like sometimes in, in, in the church, um, especially with those of us that have been going to church for a long time, and for me it's like 45 years, uh, uh, apart from being dragged as a child by my parents, by my parents, <laughs> but forty-five years under my own uh, motivation to go to church. So, you know, I look at that and I say, man, um, we tend to take this gospel for granted. You mm-hmm. know, we we get to this point where, like, okay, well, that's our that's like our entry to the to the team. It's like our ticket to get in the door. But once we're in door, then we just don't need to worry about that anymore because we've moved past that. And now we're talking about these, these deeper things of the faith. And there's nothing that is past the gospel. 
There may be other things that are part of our Christian life and part of our world as we become followers of Christ, but we never get past the gospel. We never outgrow the gospel. We never, you know, it should be a a present reality. Like we should have that sense of those springs, those fountains of living water that are constantly nourishing us. We should, we should touch base to that at any time. I was talking about how the gospel meets every human need. Mm-hmm. If your need is for justice, you may not have justice today, but the gospel tells you that you will have justice eventually. If you're lonely today, well, if you're sick today, the gospel tells you that eventually that, that, the, that the end of this for you is perfect healing and to be perf- to be together with God forever, that you will never be alone. So the gospel meets all these human needs, and there's no point at which we advance past that or outgrow it in any sense. It's that eternal nature of it that's so special. Yeah, and and I think specifically today when we look at you know we've talked about this before, but like different sociological trends and the rise of anxiety and you know skyrocketing suicide rates. Right. And no, right. There's just this deep hurt and emptiness that we find. You know, everybody looks to our society, and just about everybody can agree that things seem to be crumbling. There's fear out there. There's animosity building up. And the gospel alone is what comes to you and says that your hope doesn't rest in your circumstances. Your hope doesn't rest in your performance. It, it's something that you have to preach to yourself every day, not like you said, not just at your conversion, but this is daily medicine that mm-hmm. gives you joy, that allows you to persevere and step into it because you know your ultimate hope, your ultimate comforts are not contingent upon the things of this world because if they were, good Lord, this world would come up far short for for all of us. Right. Um, but the gospel gives us something that can never be stripped away from us that we need to look to daily. I, I think that's absolutely spot on, Mark. So she got excited about that, <laughs> as, as you might imagine. <laughs> You know, she's like, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And I thought that was interesting because of what you said earlier about the fact that she was coming at noon in her shame because she didn't want to be seen by the well. You know, that in that society, Sam, um, it, Jesus is going to ask her in just a minute. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but he's going to ask her in just a minute about her husband. And there's there's mm-hmm. things that are at there. But just the. There's things about that, but just the the fact that she's had multiple husbands in that culture, um, if it, it was pretty easy, right, for for the men to just put away their wives or get rid of them, and she didn't really have a lot of choices. It's not like she was hopping from man to man, but she was probably being rejected, right, one after the other. Yeah. So so when I used to read this story, I always assumed, and I mean it doesn't change the nature of the story for in terms of salvation, but I always assumed. That her having five different husbands, as we'll see, you know, having gone from husband, I always assumed that she was promiscuous, um, that this was somebody who was unfaithful, and these poor husbands, you know, were being <laughs> were were being betrayed by this lady who's promiscuous. But you study first century culture, and one of the problems that they had was the fact that when a man, and because it was a totally patriarchal society in these days. That when a man was done with a woman and no longer found her attractive or useful or, you know, for whatever reason, didn't Just like didn't her Just didn't want cooking. her, yeah. Yeah. 
he could just divorce her and send her away. And in the first century world, it was not like she had a livelihood. It's not like she you know, had any safety. So she was thrown into a society where a single woman, a divorced woman especially, or a widowed woman especially, was absolutely, totally vulnerable and endangered by that society. And so there was a desperation to be with a man. You know, it was it was a safety thing back then. We wouldn't understand that today, but back then, very much so. And so she goes to the next husband, who, guess what, uses her up for what he can get from her and abandons her in all likelihood is where the story is. And then she goes to the next one, and he breaks her heart. And he goes to the next – she goes to the next one, and he breaks her heart. And so – Five she, times. She five did times. that five times. Five times. Oh, my goodness. And so – by the and and by the way, what is her prize for this? She's shamed by the town. Right. And that's what I was getting at too. Is that she says, "I don't want to thirst, nor come here to draw." Yeah. I don't, that idea I don't is want, like, I don't want to have to get out. I don't want to have to come out here in my shame anymore. Yeah. You know, give I'm, me that I don't want water. to be around people. Right. I'm I'm done. I'm done with the judgment. I'm done with the embarrassment and the shame and the guilt that I feel. I just want out. Like, give me that living water so I can stay to myself and just be miserable all to myself alone. Um, and so she's just, ready for the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, she would have liked the quarantine. She, she's yes. ready to stay home in the quarantine. <laughs> she would have liked that, but she does. She wants to. She wants sad. to get away from everybody. She wants to stay away from everybody. It is very sad. And so, in each of these, because Jesus is going to say, "Go call your husband," and she says, "I don't have a husband." And she says, "He says, you're right in saying I don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband." And you know, for, for this woman, there's no doubt this is the source of her great shame. This is the reason why she comes to the, to the well at midday. Um, the Samaritans would have seen her as an adulteress, and they are every bit as legalistic as the, the Jews of Judea. They, they study, you know, a revised Torah, but the same viewpoint of an adulteress. And so every time that she's in the pu- public, she's going to feel that sting of shame. She's going to want to be alone. Um, but when Jesus points this out to her, when he says, go call your husband, that's her great shame. So, you know, we've dealt with the fact that she's a Samaritan and she's got some questions and pains there. But personally, as an individual, this, even in her own community, she's ashamed because she's had five husbands. And you know, when you're reading this story, it can feel like when you get to verse 16, and that's when, you know, they've just had this conversation, and Jesus is saying, you know, if you drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again, but if you drink of the water I will give you, you'll never be thirsty again. And then it seems like Jesus just left turn, says, go call your husband. Yeah, that is weird. It's it, like out of, out of nowhere, go get your and, husband. Oh, and it seems like, man, Jesus, don't, don't bring that up. That's, that's like her deepest pain. And it's not a change of subject here. And this is where it's, it's just really kind what Jesus is doing, even though it's going to cause pain in the immediate moment. Because what he's getting her to realize is, he, you know, when Jesus is talking about water where she'll be thirsty again, well, where does that manifest in her life? It manifests itself as she's going to be with yet another man, yet another yeah. husband, yet another situation. M- right. Maybe this one, maybe right. this one, and and so it, you know, I don't fault her for seeking to have a covering and the protections of a husband in first century culture. But here's where she's ashamed. Like her whole identity had become 
about the fact that she was the adulteress. She is the one who husband after husband after husband was disappointed with and left her and abandoned her, and that is now her full identity. And she just keeps going from one to the next and then feeling like she's failed or never measured up. And that is the water that keeps making her thirst again. And so Jesus brings this up. It's it's not a left turn. He's exposing, okay, this is where in your heart – this is what is leaving you empty. And the reason why he's doing that is he wants her to understand that standing in front of her is her ultimate husband, mm. God in the flesh, who does not value her based on her performance or her circumstance, but loves her unconditionally, is going to go to a cross. He's going to give his own life on a cross to express the price tag he has for her, and that's not based on circumstance. It's not based on on her performance. It's absolutely one-way, intense love from God toward her, and that needs to be what satisfies her because she's not defined by her adulteries. She's not – she shouldn't feel empty because of what she has experienced in the past and all the shame that comes with that because Jesus is coming to her saying, I see it all. I know everything about you. You you want me to tell you what your deepest shames are? You want me to tell you where you're unbelievably thirsty, where you want more from this life? I can list it all. Nothing's a secret to me. I know all of your mess, and I am here pursuing you. There's nothing that could keep me away from you. And he is shifting in this. When he brings up her shame, it's, it's not to shame her. It's to heal her and to show her that she can drop all of that because the God of the universe, the only one who matters, and the, at the end of the day, the only opinion that matters is looking at her saying, I want you. You're mine. You're precious to me. Stop with the shame. Mm. Isn't that the way it is, though? It's like we want to hide things from him, you know, we, especially things that we're ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Um, but he drills right to it. You know, <laughs> he comes right to the thing that is that we feel the strongest about. It, we feel the worst about. And he's telling you he's telling us through this confrontation with her. He's telling us, I am not afraid even of this. I'm not. This is not going to put me off. This thing mm-hmm. that you feel the worst about. For your uh, for yourself, the thing that you think is your worst failing, your worst problem, I'm going to speak to that head on. You know, he comes right to it, and I think that that is, for me at least, that's the comfort that I find in this seeming left turn, mm-hmm. is that Jesus comes right to the thing that she's most ashamed of and says, "Even this, even this is mm-hmm. okay." And and the reality is, like I I don't know. You know, there's there's water that we all drink that makes us thirst again, right? And and you know this is a metaphor. Jesus isn't actually talking about water, but for this woman, it was I'm seeking my identity and the love of a husband, and it kept leaving her feeling empty. She kept chasing for more, and it just drove her even further into the dirt. And we're all we can all relate to this woman because each and every one of us has some kind of a water that we keep going and thinking it's going to satisfy us, and then it leaves us empty again. And that might be that might be money, that might be our career, that might be chasing after good things like you know marriage and children and all these things. But if we find our identity in anything other than Christ, 
there's going to be these moments where we we're, we're just emptied out and we feel like total failures and and we you know I've said before life itself apart from Jesus is kind of like an addiction you know I don't know how many how many people out there know what it's like to suffer through an addiction but this is this is it mm-hmm. when you come to it the first time man it feels good it's like you know when you accomplish some great goal that you have you know let's say let's say it's my career and i get the promotion man it's it's wonderful and it'll be wonderful for a couple of days and then i think well what's next i got to got to got to get the next one i got to climb the ladder even more and then you get that and you think oh this is great but then it, you need more you need more whether it's money or whatever it might be like the moment you get what you think is going to satisfy you the human condition just screams you need more you need more, you need, and you're never satisfied. Mm-hmm. Those are the waters that leave you thirsty. And what Jesus is saying, come to me, and I'm going to give you, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll put in you a wellspring where you'll never need those things again. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll understand that your identity, that your value, your purpose is so absolutely, totally satisfied by the truth of the gospel and the fact that God looks at you and sees you as infinitely valuable where you can finally start taking that kung fu grip <laughs> you know, <laughs> off of all these things where you thought you were going to find satisfaction because as you go through life, you know they won't. You know they won't. Mm. Only he can. After he tells her this about her husband's, uh, she has this understanding that he is truly a prophet. He's a man of God. Mm-hmm. And that. Uh, and we talked about this last week, so if you, if, folks, if you want to hear more of a discussion about that, but uh, you know, her immediate reaction was then not to talk about her own situation, but was to talk about the cultural pain that she felt as a Samaritan. She brought up the, um, the what mountain should I worship on? Uh, and we did. We talked about that last week, and there's some really amazing symbolism in there. So if you didn't, if you weren't listening, if you didn't hear last week, go back and check it out because there's an awful lot. If you don't get the historical context of Mount Gerizim and uh, Mount Moriah, there's just a lot of great symbolism and 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 uh, imagery there. So we do encourage you to go back to that. But then after that. It's like then the disciples show up (laughs) and they marvel that he talked with a woman. And then it says, and it makes a point of saying this. Sam says, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? (laughs) Which is on the tip of their tongue for sure. I'm just thinking, I just, I'm trying to now put myself in the position of being one of those disciples that walk back and I see a most remarkable thing, which is number one, a man is speaking to a woman who's not his wife. Because as you said, that's very unusual. Actually, I think you said that last week, not this week, but that was very unusual in that culture Mm -hmm. for a man to speak to a woman at all that he was not married to Mm -hmm. um, or related to in some way. And and then the fact is that they're obviously having a conversation. They're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. The disciples have to be thinking what's going on here yeah. <laughs> it's like this is this is some kind of twilight zone that we've stepped into yeah and and in my imagination i don't think it's cooth <laughs> you know <laughs> that, that lead led them to not say anything i i think that they're coming and their jaws are on the floor yeah and they're like he's talking with a samaritan woman like that's how scandalous it would have been so if, if they'd have tried to have said anything i imagine it coming out like what what yeah yeah, and then as you said earlier to me, uh, at that moment, um, 
she left her water pot. The thing that she was there for was to draw water from the well. She was so uh-huh. excited about meeting this Messiah, about about encountering the Messiah, that she immediately then had to run and go and share this with her village. Sam, the thing that sticks out to me when I think about that is these are the people that ostracized her. These yeah. are the people that made her feel ashamed. These are the people that rejected her, and yet... It was her, the first thought she had was for her culture and her people and her cultural pain. And then when she realized this is the Messiah, again, immediately what she wants to do is go to these people who have wronged her and bring them this news. That is, to me, I would be kind of like, if it was me, I'd be like, wait, 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 wait. So you're going to take Messiah. You're, you're going to take care of me? Great. Listen, don't. We're not going to go to town. The rest of those guys, they can burn. They can burn. I heard nice. about Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's just turn them all, just, you know, the end of them, you know. Um, th- th- isn't it remarkable that, she, that her first thought is, I'm going to go share this with my town? Yeah. And this is such a perfect beauty. Like, it's just the perfect picture of freedom because, you know, she's out there at midday. She's been avoiding them. This is what defines her identity. She's avoiding everybody like the plague. And, and the, the symbolism that's going on here when Jesus says, you know, stop coming and getting this water expecting it to fill you up, meaning her identity. Come to, uh, come to me and I'll give you living waters. So when she leaves her water jar, you know, implied in that is that she's left the old way of doing things and mm. she's found living water. So when she leaves, she's totally set free. She goes into the town and I love what she says. She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. <laughs> you know, because they're, they know a lot of what she did. But where she used to hide in fear and shame, she's totally free from that shame anymore. Mm. She's got the approval and the embrace of the only one who matters and all of a sudden that shame does not control her anymore. Now she runs headlong and says, he told me everything I did. You guys knew a lot of it, but man, he knew everything. He told me everything I did. I'm even worse than you thought. <laughs> and he, he knew it all. And he, she's totally, absolutely free. Why? Because her thirst is quenched. Yeah. And, and that's it. Like we chase after it when we feel shame or anger or fear. Why? It's because what's most precious to us is threatened. You know, it, it provokes a response in us and we feel guilty or depressed or whatever the case might be. But she has in this moment everything that she has longed for. And Jesus. And so she leaves her water jar and all the water that can never fill her up. And she goes into the town and says, I don't care what you think about me anymore because I have the approval of the only one who matters. And now, rather than avoiding you and resenting you, now I'm freed to love you because your approval is not what's most precious to me. Mm. I'm free. Yeah. Now come and celebrate. Come find him with me. It's, it's, it's such a perfect picture of liberty. It really is. And it's, it's this idea of she is, she is immediately set free from her past. Uh, that's just mm-hmm. such a beautiful thing. So it says that the men of the village then come with her, but before they reach him, we have this really interesting exchange between the disciples who had been down at uh, Shwarma Bell <laughs> <laughs> getting Jesus some road food. Uh, they're like, you know, uh, Rabbi? Um, eat. I almost kind of wonder whether they're thinking he's not right in the head. Maybe, maybe he's, maybe he's got low <laughs> blood sugar. He's got low blood sugar. Just give him, just give him the food, you know? 
But Jesus isn't interested in their food. The thing that they left to get for him, he's not interested in. And that's a really interesting exchange there as well. Mm. What, you know, Jesus then says to them that his food, well, first of all, he says, <laughs> like this, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And the disciples are like, all right, who's, who's been smuggling the shawarma? <laughs> who's been bringing him the food? They, their first thought immediately is he's been sneaking food. Is it in his robe? Where We've got to pat Jesus down looking for the food again. But then he says that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Mm. What's, what's he getting at there with them? What's he, what is, what's he communicating to them? What I I love this. So it's it's the other side of the coin. You know, the woman who is out there to draw water mm-hmm. leaves her water jar. She doesn't take the water jar because she feels so perfectly satisfied in Jesus. And so now on the other side of this coin, you get the disciples who come to to Jesus saying, "Hey, Jesus, you need to eat." And Jesus is essentially saying, "No, no, no. I'm satisfied." Mm-hmm. Like she's satisfied because she's found him, and he is satisfied because he's found her. And that's the will of the Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work, is what Jesus says. And so you get both of these people, Jesus and the woman, who are walking away from the water jar and walking away from food because they found their satisfaction and the reconciliation to each other. And they are utterly satisfied in that. And that's just cool that that extends to Jesus as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, that's not saying that if you're a believer, you don't have to eat, you know. this. <laughs> well, this. now I am thinking maybe I should do that a little bit more. You know, I was like. <laughs> that's right. We, we've got reserves, right? We do. But, we, can, we can go on for some time. <laughs> but it's what it's saying is they found their satisfaction in one another. And this is a conversation that's been, you know, that God has had with Israel going back all the ways to the days of Jeremiah, you know, when 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 Israel was – when God said to Israel, okay, if you want to abandon me and go your own way, I will let you have your way. And he comes before them. This is Jeremiah chapter 2, um, verses 12 and 13. And I love what he says because it's, it's the same message here. But this is God speaking. He says, be appalled, O heavens. He's looking to the to the angels and the saints in heaven. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and uh, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And then he explains what he's so upset with his people about. He says this, for my people have committed two evils. Now, if you were to look at Israel, they've done thousands and thousands, <laughs> millions two, right. <laughs> of evils. But the Lord boils it down to two. He says, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that is right at the core of what this woman at the well is learning. God is coming saying, like, you've forsaken me. Like, when have I ever failed you? I, I just, I give and I give and I give and I satisfy. If you would just come to me, it never stops. My abundance for you is so overwhelming, but you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Why? Because you chose to go dig these big holes for yourself to store up water, and these cisterns that you're digging for yourselves, they can't hold water. You're going to, to dehydrate. Like, they can't satisfy you. They're going to all leak out. All of the things that you think you can do in your own strength to provide water for your life are going to fail you. They're going to fail you. And we here's the deal. We all know it. Mm. And here's the Lord saying, I'm just abundant. I'm gracious. I'm, I'm offering it to you, and you're going to walk away from me to do it on your own, and you're going to find 
that those cisterns can't hold water. And one day you're going to be empty handed and totally broken, totally broken. And what he's saying to this woman is the fountain, this fountain of living waters is here today. You have learned how empty it is chasing after all the other things in this world that will never satisfy you. You've learned how exhausting that is. And I'm here again today as a fountain of living waters. Just embrace me. Mm-hmm. And and that offer is daily open to us. So it's like you said, it's not just the conversion moment. Every single day, we need to train ourselves out of believing that we can do this life on our own, that we can create create our own way, that we can hew out cisterns for ourselves, and we can be self-sufficient apart from the Lord. No, 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 no. Every day we need to go, okay, I need to go to the fountain of living waters. He's the one who's going to satisfy me. I need to preach the gospel to myself again and remind myself of who I am in the Lord before I go out into this world that is really broken and that will leave me empty every time. I think it's cool, Sam, too, how there's a there's obviously a I feel like there's a message here from Jesus directly to us and what he says to the disciples, because there's a moment alone with them like they the woman has headed back to the village to talk to the men of the village. And Jesus is alone with the disciples for just a minute. And he says to them where he talks about his the food is to his food is to do the will of him that sent me. Then he talks about this harvest and he says, hey, you know what? Just lift up your eyes and look, you know. The field is white for the harvest. And he goes through and says to them about people that do different parts of the labor. They talk about the people that sow and the people that reap and that in the end they rejoice together. Mm. He says, for this saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors so that they would rejoice together and i just think it's interesting to me because the message i get there is that jesus is saying you know what do your part you know mm-hmm. that that there's a harvest here and this is this is what i want you to do as my disciples i want you to bring in this harvest you know these seeds have been sown and i want you to reap this harvest and that you would then rejoice together with the people that have sown the seeds i think that there's times when we forget this idea that we're on the same team in terms of the gospel. There's this question of, you know, our, what part in this are we? It doesn't really matter what part it is you play in bringing the gospel to people. Whatever part it is, you still rejoice together with everyone else who had a part when the harvest actually comes in. I thought that was kind of cool. I love that. That's cool. There's part of me that wonders, like, are the disciples thinking, you know, when you bring about your kingdom, right, when your kingdom mm-hmm. begins to take over the world, then the Samaritans will be brought to bow. But Jesus is saying, hey, we're, we're not waiting. Like, always, whatever's before you right now, now is the time to do your ministry. Mm. It was a very nationalistic view that they had of the Messiah. Totally. If they looked at Jesus and said, hey, we know that you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, what they expected the Messiah to do for them was to restore Israel, to free it from Roman oppression and restore the nation of Israel. So, yeah, you're probably right. They expected that what Jesus was going to do was deal with the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. And he was. I mean, they're they're looking for a geopolitical kingdom. Right. And he he is showing them that this is heart by heart. This kingdom moves heart by heart. Right. Right. Um. And so what I love, you know, this lady, (laughs) 
this wonderful lady who is now totally freed from all the shame that she came to the well with now runs into town and she's saying, you wouldn't believe this man who told me everything I did. And this particular passage ends by telling us many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, these are the same people that presumably had been shaming her that now can't believe that she's this free. And I suspect that all of these self-righteous people are thinking, oh, I've got a bunch of stuff. I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I've done a lot of stuff that nobody maybe knows about. And they all come and believe in him. And it says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Mm. Um, and I, I just love that this woman who, you know, it's like, it reminds us that when we come with all of our shameful past and horrible things that we've done that Jesus has cleansed us from, you know, those things are no longer um, objects of shame in our past, but it's almost like they, they become transformed into the trophy case of Jesus mm. to where now when I go out and I talk with people about the horrible things I've done in my life, it's no longer that I'm ashamed or I have to do some kind of penance. It's like, can you believe that he loved me anyway? Can you believe that he freed me and forgave me of even this? And that's a message that the rest of the world is hungry and thirsty for mm. because they're certainly not finding it on social media or anywhere else for that matter. <laughs> And our current world, um, and everybody's hungry for that. Yeah. And the whole town comes to him because of that. Mm. You know, this story is going to play itself out, and at the end of Jesus' life, there's, there's this beautiful thing that happens on the cross that I think very much relates to this story. You know, she comes to this well thirsting, and Jesus gives her the gospel. He pledges himself to her and and shows her dignity and forgives her, and then her thirst is quenched. But that doesn't come without a tremendous cost to Jesus. You know, here's, here's God who eternally in the past has been perfectly satisfied in his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, who comes to this earth and experiences what it's like to walk and, a, and some bit of what she's – he knows shame. Mm -hmm. He knows rejection. He knows what it's like to be the outcast. And when he's on the cross, it's a really – I think it's really profound that Jesus will hang on the cross and he's going to cry out, I thirst. Mm. And, and this Samaritan woman, you and I, we have our thirst quenched, right? We have it satisfied, because Jesus will go to the cross and cry out, I thirst. Mm. Um, and he is going to experience what it's like to be alienated to the extreme when he's on the cross. He's going to know what it's like to be saturated with the sin of the world. He is going to thirst for righteousness and for relation and for the Lord. And he does that so that there's never a moment in which we don't have the hope of the gospel in which our thirst is entirely quenched in his goodness. And so, like, it's just how much more could he have loved this woman or us mm. that he experiences thirst that we can't possibly imagine so that we can experience satisfaction and having that thirst quenched and being satisfied regardless of what life brings us mm. because we have him. Mm. The gospel meets every human need. Mm -hmm.
Well, we'll let that stand as our last word on the subject of reconciliation this week. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. Uh, once again, just to let you know, this is part two of a message on reconciliation. Um, <clears throat> last week, we addressed kind of the bigger picture of the racial tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans. And if you missed that episode, um, I do encourage you to go back and listen to Reconciliation Part 1, um, because we sort of dealt with it at that at that cultural level. And I think there's a lot of things in there that are really helpful at this particular time. But what a beautiful story this was of the reconciliation of this woman at the well to her Savior um, and how that completely satisfied her thirst. We do encourage you to uh, send us an email if you'd like to correspond with us, ask a question, if there's something that's prompted uh, in you by what you've heard in one of our episodes. The email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, riovistachurch.com. You can also find all the back episodes of Out of Water at our website at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on Google Play. We'll be back with another episode of Out of Water next week, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.